heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to Season 5 of the Wine Crush Podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world, featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Wine Crush Podcast. Uh, It's technically episode 13, but because it's a little bit bad luck and we don't want any bad juju in the room, we're going to skip right over to episode 14, and we're going to start from there. So we are welcoming in Leah Jorgensen with Leah Jorgensen Cellars and Vincent with Vincent Wine Company. And I'm going to attempt his last name when it's his turn, but it's not his turn right now. It is Leah's turn. So Leah... Thank you so much for coming and joining us and and actually finding the office because I know it was a little bit of a challenge finding 303 versus 304. Thank you. I'm having a number crisis today, but you know, I guess. 13 and 303, but I, I'm here. I made it. So you made it. You. you were even early. I think you even beat Vincent and, oh no, you came in smoking last. Well, truth be told, we actually were both uh, next door at Harvest Fresh having a quick bite before coming over here. So. Okay, fair enough. Right. So you were just, you know, buying, everyone, you were just buying goes. time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome in and thank you for joining us with, you know, your loveliness. So I'm very excited. Just so everybody knows, Leah is my new BFF. <laughs> and I informed her of that on Saturday after we had our little <laughs> wine garage. I don't know. What would you call that? individual soiree at your house a couple of weeks ago. We had so much fun and realized that we have, I don't know, we we are meant to be friends. Kindred spirits. Yes, there we go. So let's kind of jump into your story and talk about you instead of all of our nonsense that we've been talking about. It's so much more fun. It is, but there's going to be more nonsense as, as the rest of the afternoon goes on. So um, let's talk about kind of how you got into this whole crazy business of wine. But I think if I remember right, like you're life in wine started as a child because of your heritage with your- Yeah, it played a huge role. Yeah, it sure did. I mean, having almost polar opposite parents, it was it was a very interesting household to grow up in. I have a very West Coast, Oregon, Nordic dad, and then a very East Coast Italian mom. So those could not have been more polar opposites in so many different respects. They really are. And it, it's made life really fun, I think. I, I think it's made me a balanced person because I have two extremes at home. But but yeah, having an Italian mom and that heritage has been pretty much a a baseline for food and culture, what we celebrated growing up from religion to and religion was always more even about like ritual. So I love ritual and wine was always a part of the meal. And so technically I've been drinking wine since I was five. My grandmother was the youngest of eight and all her uncles and brothers, they all made their own wine. And so they would bring out wine to the table and the little kids, my grandma would put a little Italian soda in with a little wine and ooh, yeah. So I've never seen anybody do that like that. Yeah. So, or even heard of it for that matter. That was pretty funny. (laughs) Well, that'll give us something to think about later on, maybe next week or something when we are bored. Yeah. We can start mixing Italian sodas and wine in the office and (laughs) we might get all kinds of stuff done. You just never, you just never know. But my family, yeah, on my my grandmother's side, she was uh, the youngest of eight. They, 
her family came from the Campania in, in Italy, and they'd been making wine there for 17 generations, actually, wow. in the Campania. So we're looking at grapes like La Crimi de Christie's and um, Falangina and Greco Tatufo. My grandfather or my mother told me, technically, I'm a 10th generation winemaker, which was kind of weird because my grand my grandmother did not make wine, but her cousins, you know, so it was like kind of one removed or whatever. But anyway. so it's in your blood, I guess. Whatever. It's, yes, probably genetically and just socially. <laughs> I think definitely yeah. the social part of it, just the appreciation of having it with a meal, is really what's always been about in our home. And I know just Europe in general is like that. I mean, alcohol as a whole is just mm-hmm. not kind of taboo in Europe in a lot of spots, whether it's wine in Italy, France, and Spain, or beer and ale in the UK, whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just kind of part of traditional life. So I a lot of times when we see people with, you know, European, you know, heritage that's so tightly still close woven yeah. and, and knit, you see a lot of that. A love and appreciation for wine and food, and you are no different, obviously. Well, you know, I, you almost can't help it because it's whether you want it or not. I mean, like in my grandmother's kitchen, opera was always blaring, which I didn't like as a kid. I appreciate it now, but when I was growing up, it really, it was loud. Everything was so loud all the time. But and um, it's chaotic to me. Chaotic, yes. But I, I appreciate it now, and sometimes I feel so isolated that we're here in in Oregon, my my immediate family and my closest cousins are all still on the East Coast. And then I'm I'm pretty close to a couple of cousins here, like up in Seattle on my dad's side. But it's just different. It's both wonderful, but I it's nice to go home and catch up with the the Italian cousins. <laughs> let yeah. let that part of you loose yeah, back yeah, loose yeah. again. Yeah. If I remember right, you said you grew up on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Your dad was from Eugene, mm-hmm. right? Yes. You grew up on the East Coast. So how did you meander back all the way across the United States back to the Willamette Valley and then start your own wine journey? Oh, such a great question. Well, I was working for a distributor in Washington, D.C., and I had mostly restaurant accounts and there was apparently a contest going on with Domaine Druin for a sales rep to come out to Pinot Camp as a silver bullet. And are you familiar with their silver bullets? Yeah. Uh, Not silver bullets. I guess I shouldn't have said yes before you finished your sentence. I don't even know if this is a thing anymore, but this was back in 2004. So it's been a a minute. But um, back in 2004, they had silver bullets where they were people in the industry who were not either restaurant or retail on or off-premise buyers, but who were in the industry, hence like a distributor, but they felt like really deserved to come out to Pinot Camp for whatever reason. So I sold a lot of Domaine Druin in Washington, D.C. because it was really easy to sell. I mean, I had a lot of that at the time, Washington, D.C. is one of those cities that the restaurant scene sort of emulates whatever um, president is in the White House, really. So at the time, it was George Bush. So GW, yes. And, yep. Yep. And uh, there were a lot of steakhouses. That makes sense. So I had a lot of- Being from Texas. mm -hmm, So I had a lot of steakhouses as my accounts. And these were just wine. Those are the kinds of restaurants where they would just do pre-sales and pre-orders. So I would just go in and like 10 cases here, 20 cases there. It's It's so funny, like selling wine 
outside of the major city because you're like, I'll take six bottles. <laughs> you go to DC or New York, we'll take 10 cases here. We'll take it. It feels good. I mean, it's a great sale. <laughs> it's a great way to sell wine. Anyways, um, I was invited to come out to Pinot Camp. So about three minutes in, maybe three hours in, I also got to stay at the Petite Maison. So it's the little house that Veronique and her family stay in mm. when they come out to Oregon. What a great was pretty honor and charming and whatever else. Yeah. yeah. What a what a great experience. It was really cool. So my coworker, Lucien, he also was invited. Um, he was in the Maryland group of the business I worked for. And so, yeah, we got to stay at this Petite Maison and we really hung out with Ashley Bell and Aaron Bell for a good deal of the time. And I met Steve Olstek, who was at the time the general manager at Erath. And he was looking for someone to do national sales. And two months later, Erath moved me to Dundee, Oregon. I had a little cottage on Ninth Street, brought my two cats, and <laughs> the rest is kind of history. I mean, I I feel really grateful that I've, since I've been out here, that I worked for Pioneering Winery. So I worked for Erath for a couple of years. I helped transition Erath to St. Michelle when Dick decided to sell the winery. I had a really good relationship with Dick, and I feel like lucky about that. He's he's one of my favorite pioneers. He's just humble, and he's like a giant teddy bear, and he knows a lot about a lot of different things, especially Italian varietals. And I was sitting at my desk one day, and he came down, and he knew I had an Italian mom, and he had a giant book on Italian varietals, which is like it looked like a giant Bible, excuse me, Bible. And he threw it down on my desk, and he said some light reading for you, and. I just laughed. I just appreciated him so much. He just, yeah, he was fun and kind. And I still see him every now and again when he's in town. At, I run into him usually at Red Hills Market in Dundee. You run into everybody at Red Hills Market. It's true. It's a great If you spot. want to find a winemaker ever, it doesn't matter which one. You just sit at Red Hills for a few hours. Yeah. And there'll be a whole sloof of them come yeah. through, especially during harvest. And they're always dressed in Carhartts or muddy jeans or covered in purple or, yeah. you know, whatever. So, yes, it's um, it's kind of like the who's who of Yamhill County if you wish to, you it know, is. find a rock star winemaker. It is. Yes. It's the Studio 54 of, of Oregon wine country. <laughs> it really kind of is. What a great comparison. <laughs> but, yes, not far off. It's always interesting to me sit in there because it's like, oh, Remy walks in one day and yeah. then Corey Schuster walks in another day and then Don Olson walks in. And yeah. I mean, there's, there's just this parade of people from all edges, you know, kind of walk in and it's just so cool. Yeah. So sometimes incognito. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. how did you get from sales into the actual making of the wine? Well, you know, it's always been in the back of my mind, but I, and even when I was, I worked at a winery in Virginia for a short while too, before I moved out to Oregon and I really loved watching the production side. Um, and I was very curious. I'm just a curious person by nature. And I just wanted to spend more time in the cellar, but it just didn't work out that way. And I really didn't have the confidence in my 20s. And I moved out here when I was 30. And I didn't even really have the confidence then, but it was always in the back of my head that I wanted to learn more about production. And I thought about my family and my heritage. And I just... Yeah, it was something I just always thought about, but I never took seriously. I just didn't believe I had it in me. After leaving Erath, I was at St. Michelle. I didn't want to be up in Woodenville. I wanted to be back in Oregon. So David Adelsheim hired me to be his director of um, marketing and communication. And 
that was great, but I was already at that point, like I didn't want to do marketing anymore. I was over it and I felt guilty about it because I really respected David and I wanted to do a good job for him. But, and it was right before he was getting, considering transitioning away from his iconic labels, the ones with the ladies. And so it was just right at that time where there was a great opportunity had I stayed on longer, but I just, I didn't feel it. And he called me into his office and he knew it. He knew I didn't want to be doing that job. And he, he kind of just gave me a favor. He, and I, I had said I wanted to get into production at one point and I'll never forget. He said, well, if you want to do it, you just do it. Like it's kind of that simple. But in my head, I was thinking, well, I'm making a really good salary. I have a making a good living. I've kind of worked my way up to what I thought was pretty much as far as I would go in this industry. So that idea of leaving that to seasonal, maybe no work, <laughs> hourly, like it just, it seemed like I was going backwards. I didn't have the vision at the time, but then I just kind of, it just worked out. It, I, I, when I left, by the time I left Adelsheim, I found myself consulting. And so I did marketing consulting for a handful of wineries. I worked with Maria Stewart at R. Stewart. She did so much for me. I, I loved her so much. And I worked with a couple other wineries. I did a little bit of work for Willa Kenzie and when Ronnie LaCroote was still, when they were still owners. And I enrolled in the Chemeketa program and talked to Thomas Hausman and lined up my first harvest at Anime Vineyards. And so that's kind of where the transition happened. But it was a little reluctant, a little nervous. I, I knew I left working for a winery in a full-time capacity, so leaving Adelsheim. I kind of prepped myself by consulting. And I was like, okay, if I can do this, then maybe this can happen. So I was very reluctant. And I'm one of those people, I had to be a planner. I, I needed something there to like, obviously pay for rent and pay my bills. And so I needed to feel comfortable before I could just take a leap. Are you glad you took the leap? I mean, that was it. That's a huge leap. And sometimes people are, I mean, you're very doing very successfully, you know, I'm from what I can see anyway. Yeah, it seems yes, like it, doesn't it? It seems like you're <laughs> doing kidding? okay. Yes, kidding? and we've, well, we'll, we'll talk about the wine here in just a minute. So, um, <laughs> but uh, but taking that leap is, it's scary. It's mm -hmm. hard. It's exhilarating. Mm -hmm. It's terrifying at the same time. But once you take it, it's an all or nothing a lot of times. And are you glad that you did that and didn't kind of go down a different path? Yes, I'm also a big fan of metaphysics and quantum physics, and that's kind of what I do for my leisurely reading and, and entertainment. Sounds very light. And uh, one of the things I've gleaned from a kind of metaphysics standpoint is that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, otherwise I'd be somewhere else. And that's the reality. That's how I look at everything. So I don't hold any space for regret. I don't believe in coincidences at all. I think a coincidence is a word we've made up for things we don't understand, but at the true nature of it and the universe, how it works, um, you can call it God. I don't think it's different. I think it's all the same, but however you want to piece it together, I just believe that you are where you're supposed to be. And so I just paid attention. I think the flow was there. The synchronicity was there. Things presented themselves if certain opportunities didn't present themselves to me personally, I wouldn't have taken them. So like the opportunity came up and I seized the opportunity. That's kind of how I, I look at everything. 
See, this is why you and I are meant to be friends <laughs> on so many levels because I am I say it all the time. I mean, things happen for a reason. Yeah. And I've always said that a door cracks and if you don't look into it and stick your foot in there so it doesn't close on you, then you've kind of lost out on a potential, you know, next step or, you yeah. know, opportunity. And I kind of have lived by that adage as well, and it's worked out okay. Like, I would have never asked to start a podcast, but it kind of presented itself, and here exactly. we are five-plus years later and 60 episodes in or however far we're at. So anyhow, so no, I, I totally get it. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's shift a little bit to the wine okay. um, because we have these beautiful bottles sitting here, but there's something very unique and interesting about your winemaking and, and what you've decided to do because you've decided to – really focus on a particular varietal for the most part, and you've done so many different things with it. So let's talk kind of um, why why that of all things and kind of, you know, again, why it's presented itself that way. Well, Cabernet Franc to me has always been a go-to wine. I mean, back when I was in Washington, D.C., my boss was from the Loire Valley. We also represented the book of Louis Dresner, and I worked alongside Joe Dresner many times. He would come down from New York to work the market. And um, I was often one of the sales reps that was placed with him because I had really great restaurant accounts. And so we had an incredible Loire Valley book. And so I was selling hero wines, wines that I've always loved and have been a fangirl of. So I, when I came out to Oregon, I, it always, I was curious why there wasn't anyone really in the Pacific Northwest in general making um, Cabernet Franc that was really about Cabernet Franc. There's a lot of vineyards that had uh, Cabernet Franc planted for blending. And so even the way the vines were planted in in Washington and in Oregon, growing wild. I mean, you'd, I'd walk into a lot of vineyards and you'd just see these super high canopies. And I just thought it was odd. And I was like, okay, they're clearly just making this as a blending grape. And then Every now and again, you'd see a standalone Cabernet Franc. And I don't mean this in any kind of criticism. I think there were people who probably really liked Cab Franc, but what they would do is make it without really taking the time to hone in on the vine and present Cabernet Franc the way Cabernet Franc wants to be presented. I just said that. That's weird. But I I think that I think that um managing a canopy is really important for Cabernet Franc, and Cabernet Franc knows it. So like when we talk about methoxypyrazines and when Cab Franc tastes like bell pepper, you know, having an Italian grandmother, you never tasted garlic in her food. Interesting. She used garlic, but you never tasted garlic in the food. Does that make sense? It it did because, I mean, it's, again, it's managing the other ingredients to blend into, to morph into one flavor profile right. for, instead of having all these individual flavors that are standard. Yeah. Italian food should never taste just like garlic. Yeah. Or it, just like basil. Or, or just, just like, like basil oregano. or oregano. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And so by managing canopies and managing water, your, the timing of your irrigation, the amount of your irrigation, you can actually cut back those methoxypyrazines. They'll always be there. It's part of the plant physiology. But instead of Having it present itself in the primary context of the wine, we're making it now like tertiary. And instead of it being bell pepper, it's more jalapeno, tarragon. So understanding the physiology of the plant allows you as a winemaker to make decisions to really showcase, again, I'm going to say Cabernet Franc, how she wants to be presented. And I call her Cinderella because I think she's like the real belle of the ball. Because when you think of like the the Bordeaux blends, they're the wicked, you know, not the wicked, I guess the wicked stepsisters, 
I like Merlot. I like Cabernet Sauvignon. I like those other varietals. They're lovely. But for so long, Cabernet Franc has been like in the ashes in the you know gutter, like cleaning. And those who really know, know, if you know what I mean. They know. I love the analogy. I'm, I'm such a sucker for a great analogy. And <laughs> no one's used Disney, let alone Cinderella and the Wicked <laughs> Stepsisters to describe wine. So that was amazing. Well. Thank, yes. And I mean, I guess, you know, there, to understand the physiology, I mean, mm-hmm. wine is so vast and deep, you know, with the chemistry, the biology, the microbiology, everything that goes into it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm wondering if, because I'm not a green pepper fan at all, I've mm-hmm. never been a huge Cab Franc fan. Mm-hmm. And it, that's probably why. And I hadn't really connected the two until you just said that. A lot of vintners and growers or winemakers in general are working with fruit that is not intended to be a single varietal wine. So you have to make changes in the vineyard in order to have Cabernet Franc um, appear as Cabernet Franc wants to appear. That makes sense. So you're kind of just working with her rather than against her or just... Yeah. So I'm Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that as a whole, Cab Franc is used more as a blending grape. A hundred percent. Yeah. So that's why the canopy can kind of do whatever it wants and it just kind of takes on whatever trait it... Yeah, it's not that they don't care about it, but its primary job is just to like add structure to the wine for Bordeaux and Meritage blends. So it doesn't need the meticulous care if it's just going to be a, a blending grape, you know? It's so interesting. Mm-hmm. So is is that why you chose to focus on Cab Franc was to show her Cinderella qualities? Well, I just loved the wines from the Loire that that I got to sell. And my again, my boss was from the Loire Valley and I just, I fell in love with... Cabernet Franc and found the food friendliness. And then, you know, the funny thing is when I started working with Cab Franc here, my Italian mom is like, why are you making a Cab Franc? Why are you not making an Italian wine? (laughs) And I was like, some of my favorite Cabernet Francs are from Italy. Some of the most amazing Cabernet Francs are actually from Italy. So it is a universal grape. It's planted in so many places. And I just, I think that it's something that is, it translates in in many different regions and it can play well in, in different regions, but it plays best in soils that have marines, you know, ancient marine uh, material. And so that's what we have in, in some of the vineyards that I'm working with. And I'm very selective. I mean, Vincent and I were recently chatting about, is it time to buy the vineyard? Is it time to do these things? And Honestly, I have access to what I think is arguably the best Cabernet Franc vineyard in the country right now. Cabernet Franc, not in California, but in the country at Craterview Ranch. And the reasons for that, and I can like do a whole essay on why that particular site is was born to have Cabernet Franc. So if I were to plant an estate vineyard, I wouldn't have that right now. I don't have access to that, to that. Land, if the land became available to me, that was, if Crater View <laughs> became available to me, I would like, I would murder someone from the mafia to get some money to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, you better believe I'd do that. <laughs> so, so, but I, Italian roots showing. But, <laughs> yes. I'd, you know, East Coast. I, <laughs> <laughs> East Coast. But I, but I, um, I'm not anticipating it presenting itself. So here I am as a negociant and I'm buying grapes because I want to buy the best Cabernet Franc grapes that I can. So is everything that you're buying out of Southern Oregon for the most part, or are you buying something in Washington? And- I, the point is to be Oregon-focused. I do get some Gamay from the Van Duzer Corridor. 
And I, in 2021, we were dealing with a pretty catastrophic drought in Southern Oregon, as in California. And so parts of Southern Oregon had water rights, parts did not. Our vineyards in the Applegate had access to water, and many of the vineyards in the Rogue did not. And so by July 16th in 2021, water was cut off in many of the vineyards I worked with, and it was just a a game to see what was going to survive and where stored water would be used for irrigation, much of it being deficit irrigation. And so I pretty much realized I'm not going to be getting all of my fruit. I better come up with a plan. And so I was introduced to Kiona Vineyards, the vineyard manager. I've, I've known about those, the Kiona wines for years. They're the pioneering uh, winery and vineyard in Red Mountain in Washington. They were the first vineyard planted. And so some of the oldest Cabernet Franc, probably in the Pacific Northwest, I believe the vineyard was, I'm not sure if the Cabernet Franc was originally planted in 1974. I think it was. I, I need to fact check that. It's a very good year, by the way. I know. <laughs> were you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me too. Okay, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? It is funny. Kindred spirits. Yes. So I was able to secure four tons and I picked really early and I think they thought I was out of my mind. I really think they didn't take me seriously as a winemaker, like this little lady is coming up, you know, and <laughs> picking way ahead of everybody else. Um, but there was a reason for it. Um, and what I understand for Washington fruit in particular with Cabernet Franc, I knew that there's flavor development, there's sugar accumulation, there's acid development. You know, you can add acid, you can add sugar, you can't add flavor. So the first thing I wanted to make sure was that the flavor was intact in order for me to pick early. And it was. It was a very hot year. Obviously, there was droughts everywhere. <laughs> so my decision to pick early is that a lot of the vineyards in that part of, you know, eastern Washington have really high pH really, really, really high pH. And I do about 90% of my winemaking decision making around pH. I don't even pay attention to TA. I don't care about TA. It's all, To me, pH tells me everything I need to know about a wine from stability, um, microbial stability to, you know, everything. Every, every decision I make comes back to pH. So I, there were some intentional reasons to pick early. So I do and have, to answer your question, yes, I have one Washington wine okay. in 2021. There you go. And I mean, it's it's interesting to kind of hear the nuances of these different vineyards because up until, you know, I started learning about this, it, to me, a grape is a grape is a grape. I mean, it comes in a bag at the grocery store and, you know, if not, it goes in a bottle and somebody squishes it and, <laughs> you know, adds some booze to it and voila, you have a drink, you know, right? And so learning these nuances on how different sites, different states, different mm -hmm. terroirs, different soils impact all of this stuff. And then you throw in the pH and the TA and yeah. the acid and the blah, 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 all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just adds such complexity to what I thought was, you know, and a lot of people think is just a really simplistic beverage that comes out of a, a fancy bottle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it can it can cause a lot of anxiety, you know? This is a, you asked me earlier, was it a great decision? Were you glad you did this? And I was like, <laughs> I mean, there's moments I like, I feel very grateful. And there are moments I'm like, man, what have I done to myself? Because I've created so much anxiety for myself. Mm -hmm. I saw a funny meme the other day and it was like, 
three, you remember the show Solid Gold from the 70s or 80s? Oh, it was the best show ever. It's three dudes like all in gold, like doing their little meme dance, this triad of guys <laughs> yeah, dancing. Yeah. And it said, my regular anxiety, my social anxiety, and my COVID anxiety are all going out tonight. Yeah, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> that's me. I feel like I, it's just amplified layers of anxiety I never knew I had. <laughs> different jobs do different things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's talk wine. Because when I was over there, we didn't taste any wine because we were too busy <gasps> yapping about everything. Um, I'm so a did, bad hostess. I'm oh, sorry. no, no. It was great. I think it was at 10 in the morning or something. So, you know, <laughs> it made me feel like not such an alcoholic to not be <laughs> drinking wine at 10 a.m. But you sent me home with this bag of goodies. And the one thing that had caught my eye before I even got to your house was the fact that you do a white Cab Franc, mm -hmm. um, Blanc de Cab Franc, I mm -hmm. think is what it says over there. Yes. So before I, we get way into the wine, I want to talk about our pirate lady on the front because <laughs> she's so pretty. I love labels and I love really good labels. And she is definitely a showstopper. Well, that is Andrea LaRue, Nectar Graphics, and she's amazing. Andrea is amazing. She's such a great artist. Little um, mm -hmm. adorable office right here in downtown Mac. Yep, she's mm -hmm. just two blocks from the office, mm -hmm. two blocks over, one block down. <laughs> yes, yes. You've been there. I've I've been there. It used to be a little. It's actually where Bella Casa originally was, the um, the little gift shop, and then Andrea took it over several years ago and has just made a huge name for herself in the wine industry. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yes, the pirate princess, isn't that what she is? Yes, it, you know, I when I first met with Andrea, I had. I was wrapping up. I just worked at Shea Wine Cellars, and I thought I was going to do something like that on a label. I thought I needed to be taken seriously, especially since I'm a woman winemaker. I didn't want to like, I didn't want my labels to look amateurish or comedic or, you know, less than serious. Because I really had a vision for doing something with Cab Franc, and I knew if I was going to step into this, like, you look at Clos Rougeard, it's a very classic label. I thought I needed to do that, and then she kind of interviewed me and was I was telling our stories and the pirate princess came up because I was when I was working for Thomas Houseman, you know, there was a day when it was October, freezing, rain, and we all had dinner from they had a chef. We're all dressed in black, rained on, wet, miserable. And he kind of made a joke about everyone being a miserable looking pirate crew and he laughed and called me the pirate princess. Cause I was the token female that that vintage of that night at the dinner table. And so it kind of stuck as a little joke and it's on my business card, mainly because I thought it, I like humor. I like wordplay and puns and I did a lot of wordplay and puns on several of my wine labels. But, um, you know, she got me out of this sort of zone of feeling like I had to be very serious when that's not my personality. And she decided... <laughs> She encouraged, go with your personality. She did the sketch of the pirate princess. And when I first saw it, I was like, oh no, that's never going on my bottle. She's like, trust me, cut it out, put it, let's put it on the bottle. And I stepped away and I was like, oh, that's a hundred percent the label. Like it's so, it's like going into a store and you see like a dress on a, on a rack and you skim through something because you don't have the vision for it. Cause it's just hanging on a hanger. But then you go in and you try it on and you're like, oh my gosh, like that's the dress, right? Yep. That's kind of what happened with the label. That's so. the damn look. It looks good. Yeah. Vibe. She, yes. she, on the bottle, she knows what she's doing, that lady. So anyways, that's the pirate princess. That's kind of what it, what it's rooted in. But I also 
to me, as serious as I am about winemaking and and my craft, I also tend to be a bit of a goofball. And I like, like as I mentioned, wordplay and puns. And even if I'm just entertaining and making myself laugh, I mean, that I'm fine with that. I'll sometimes write the back copy of something and I'll just sit there and it's not that I think I'm clever. I just appreciate, you know, some silliness every now and again. So I like whimsical things. So it's serious, but has a little whimsical nod to, I don't know. To something. To something. Yes. Well, I like it. So, <laughs> you know, it's very eye-catchy and it's just, it's very, I don't know, it's just very beautiful. Oh. I mean, and, it's, and it does have a whimsy to it. So yeah. it plays just That's to your little pirate princess. <laughs> and they all have a little bit of a different twist to them. So, but I do want to go back to this white cob front mm-hmm. because there's not any of this. No, there's a few, but I was... I was the first one to do it, definitely in the United States. There was a California producer around the same time who was using it for a base wine for sparkling wine. And so that's kind of how I go back to my explanation for it. I was aware of the Loire Valley. There were a handful of winemakers making white cap franc. And essentially, they were also using it for base wine for Cremant de Loire. And they would either blend it with Chenin Blanc, Chardonnay, both, whatever. And of course, Cabernet Franc was the grape used for the, especially in summer, the Cremant de Loire rosés. So same thing with Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Champagne. It's There's a, a reason for it, and it has to do with acidity. It has natural acidity. And that's why it's an age-worthy grape. It's why Bordeaux and Heritage Blends love to use and utilize Cabernet Franc for structure because it has impeccable natural acidity and also great tannin structure, the two. So I really wasn't my idea to make a white Cabernet Franc. And I wasn't interested in making an arbitrary white wine from red grapes. I just knew that it was already being done with a very specific reason in mind. So, um, yeah, first person definitely in Oregon, definitely in the U.S. to do a still white cap franc. And I don't know if that matters or means anything. It's just I thought it would taste good and be fun to do. So, What was your first vintage? 2011. 2011. Yeah. So I'm trying to think because – I think we had your uh, first vintage of the Blanc de Franc in 2012 in a winery at Harvest. And I think that I met you, or I'm not sure if I'd met you then. What I mean to say is I want to say that I met you through your wine and specifically through Blanc de Cab Franc. Oh, wow. Which is kind of cool because I remember being like, if I, I knew your name. I remember knowing your name and not knowing you. And I remember being like, who the hell is this? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Got to meet them. In the best way. You know. The few people. I, I, I think I had division winemaking and, yeah. and Kate and Tom that way. Yeah. And actually, I have an importer in Quebec who had my Pinot Blanc in Rhode Island and had that same reaction when they contacted me and we started working together. They said, oh, yeah, we had your wine. And we're like, who's doing that? Yeah. <laughs> so. it's, well, it's funny because right around that time, I mean, we got connected through Ann Hubach. Right. In fact... And I was, I think, just a couple of vintages in, I had just the white Cab Franc, and I think I was finally sourcing enough Cab Franc to make a red. I did my flat track Cab Franc, which was a fundraising wine for the Rose City Rollers Roller Derby. I love <laughs> that. Was I fun. love the roller derby culture. It's so fun. I do too. Yes. And I had a lot of friends who were doing roller derby, and they were trying to get me to do roller derby because I played lacrosse and I was coaching. I coached lacrosse at Jesuit for a bit, the girls lacrosse team, varsity lacrosse. But I never did it, um, and I was like, I'm not going to, like, hurt myself and then not be able to do a harvest. Like, that would be problematic. So, But I did do a fundraising wine. That was the first straight-up red cap franc that I did. 
And I think that following that was 12. And then in 13, I think that's about when I met you. It was yeah. like around 13 or 14. Yeah. And it's funny because juicy. We were doing a tasting no, somewhere. It is funny. <laughs> it's embarrassing for me mostly. We were doing a tasting somewhere, and then it was like an, there was a dinner or something, and Hubach was behind it all. And we ended up at near Clinton Row. Street, the bar. Who was it, Row? The, the the dinner we had dinner at Row, Row, yeah. like yes, Row, fine, fine dining, right? But then afterwards, right. we all went to this bar. Um, what is the name of the bar? Was it the? It's near oh, Clinton. Oh wait, Clinton, yeah, Clinton and Twenty. It was like the Richmond. No. Mary, no, no. God, I can't remember the Wasn't name. the Richmond. Whatever. This is like our- But yeah, no, it's uh, whatever it was. A, a great late night dive bar. Perfect kind of Southeast yes. Portland dive bar. A bunch of us hanging out. Ordering bad food and good drinks. Yes. Bad drinks and yes. bad food or good there food. Was, or... There were beers and I was Mixed drinking drinks. cider because I have celiac. It's so exciting. That's right. But we were all sitting in a in a booth and I was so tired. I was so tired. And so I was tired- and we all had so many wonderful wines to sample that I fell asleep. I yes. fell asleep. It happens. And when I kind of woke up, I looked at Anna and I was like, I don't think I should. I'm going to just take a cab. And you were like, thankfully, so you were. So I had come late in the evening. You were more been sober. elsewhere. Yes. I, I had been elsewhere. And so I joined up with this crew and found them late into the evening. That's right. And I think I drove your you, fun Fiat home. You did. He did me yes. a solid a favor, <laughs> dropped me off I at drove, home. I drove your Fiat. Oh, no. And the, Anne was in a car behind. And then after you dropped off my yeah, Fiat, that's right. you I jumped in with Anne. It. it was I like a team. It right. takes a there team. There we go. Winemakers, that's man. Right. We yeah. got each other's backs. Yeah. That's. That there's nothing wrong with that and more friends, the better, right? But I'll never forget that. I thought that was really, really kind. <laughs> yes. I'm serious. Well, I'm so I... glad this worked out for the two of you to be together on the same day. Same day, same show, same podcast. Because I, Drink, I Drinking each just, other's wine. I didn't let just anybody drive Isabella. That was my Oh, own. she even had a name. That's the red Fiat. Yeah. There Isabella we... Rossellini. Yeah. Oh, there we go. All that my makes... cars have names. Yeah. So much sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I am um, the rarity in that I name nothing. And our our vehicles have been named for me. And we'll talk about that off air because none of them are nice. <laughs> so I have dirty friends. Um, <laughs> so, okay. Let's finish up talking about some of the other wines okay. um, really quickly that you do. And then where everybody finds you to buy this um, deliciousness in a bottle. And this reserve is amazing, by the way. Well, thank like, you. Um, this is the 2017. Mm -hmm. Totally different than the 2016. Like there's so totally different wines. Yes, yeah, totally different, different wines. Different barrel aging, different timing, yeah. barrel aging, all of it. Yes, it's delicious. So um, with the reserve, so most of the wine that is out in front of the public are my flagship wines, like my flagship Cabernet Franc, the Oregon Touraine, which is a play on words. It's a Gamay Cabernet Franc blend. But the reserve and the ground reserve are wines that I make less less of these wines and I hold on to them and they cost the there's a little bit more of a price tag to them for lots of reasons. Scarcity being a big one, special vineyards being the other part of it, and then just time and the energy putting into those wines. So the reserve it actually ages in punchin. So punchins are, you know, almost twice the size of a of a normal barrel, more than twice the size of a barrel, 132 gallons. And I leave it in there for 15 to 18 months. And then I bottle age for another nine to 10 plus months, depending on my mood and the wine. So sometimes I'll hold on to them longer. I use time as a tool. It's a winemaker tool. I hold my white cap franc a year before releasing. I hold my 
Rosé a year before releasing. Again, Cabernet Franc does better with time. It just does. So I want to release those wines to the world when they taste great, not when they taste like they just came off the bottling line. Because they do with Cap with Cap Franc, it's sensitive. Like it's not sensitive the same way that Pinot Noir is a lighter lift, needs more restraint. But it just, there's so many things going on and I feel like it just opens up and then slowly evolves. And it just, it's why it's in... Bordeaux and Meritage blends. It's just it's a slow evolving. She's slow. She goes at her own pace. So same thing with the reserve and the Grand Reserve punchin for twenty four plus months. So much smaller production. And then I think I only make like twenty six cases of it. And again, bottle age it for quite some time before I release it. And so you have a rosé. As well. I do. And you have, is Gamay by itself or is that a blend? I do have a Gamay standalone and I have the blend with the Cab Franc, the Taurine, which is 40% Gamay and 60% Cabernet Franc. I can't take credit for that blend. It was originally done by Clos Roche Blanche in the Taurine region of the Loire Valley. It's delicious wine. I've not gotten to that bottle yet. They're not around anymore. mm, You gave me something that I thought had kind of the name on it, the new... Oh, the Taurine. Yes. Yes. yes, But the the Cloroche Blanche in the Loire Valley is no longer... No, no, your your one like that. Yes, we still... What else are we missing that's in your lineup? Ooh, I have a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc. I have a Malbec in a like Cote style, like a Loire style. It's very brambly. It's not like New World... Malbec. It's more blackberry and bright and lots of acidity because it's Crater V Ranch, the same place where the Sauvignon Blanc, the Cabernet Franc comes from. Lots of acidity in those wines. And what I have a sparkling Gamay rose that's a one off. I love sparkling wine. I love drinking it. I hate making it. <laughs> just do. I hate making it. Everybody has to have something that they just yeah. don't love. Yeah. So. I'll drink the shit out of it, but I just don't want to <laughs> make it. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. So where do we find you? Instagram, Facebook, website, all of blah, those. Blah, blah. Yes. My handle's Leah Jorgensen Sellers, J O R G E N S E N. That's Danish, not Swedish. So <laughs> E N. And let's see. Yeah, those are my handles for Instagram, Facebook. I have a website, Leah Jorgensen Sellers. We're actually building a brand new website. It's going to be very exciting and very beautiful. And I'm so excited about it. I can't wait for it to launch. Um, hopefully this fall. And so stay tuned. And then um, I have distribution in a few states, but mostly you can find me here in, and we're based in Newburgh, Oregon. And if you want to come tasting, it's a cute little private tasting that you mm-hmm. have to plan ahead for, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Because we're not always app- there. <laughs> appointment only. That's right. Yes. But it is it is a sweet little spot um, where you guys live. So thank you. Very, very worth seeking out and coming to find Leah and all of her beautiful pirate princess lady models. <laughs> so thank you so much. Yes. Thank you for everything. So we're going to take a break really quick. We're going to come back with Vincent, even though we've already heard him on the air with his <laughs> deep little voice. And we're going to drink some more wine. And then and we oh, we have one question at the very end for the both of you, but we're going to hold on to that tightly. So refill your glasses and we'll be right back with Vincent. Okay, so we have brought the tasting segment back 
for us to try. And Leah has her Reese's Pieces because she can't have the, <laughs> the chocolate brownie bites that Allie made us today. But Vincent and I and Shay and Daniel are all drinking the White Cup Franc and the Pinot versus the brownie. So Vincent's already said his opinion, but we're going to, I haven't tried it yet. Brownie first, then drink or drink first, then brownie? Ooh, I think chicken before the egg, egg before the chicken. It's a food wine match. Uh, eat your food okay. and match with the wine and we'll see if it works. Mm-hmm. Okay. How's your Reese's Pieces? <laughs> your ET food. Fake competitive. Oh, no. Those are delicious, by the way. Mm. Those brownie bites, they're really oh, good. Yeah. Okay. So I said I'm not a sweets, dessert, and dry wine fan. Uh-huh. But many people are. And part of that is that a lot of dry wines have some sweetness to them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but mine are pretty dry. And people will come up to me and say, oh, do you have any sweet wines? And I really have to assure them they're really dry. Like disappointingly dry. If you want sweet, they're disappointingly dry. If you want dry wine, they might be your thing. So, But you know oh. what? These are not too sweet and the wine seems to work with it. And I think I do think the White Cab Franc does work with it. But there definitely is a extra layer of richness with the Pinot mm-hmm. that follows the brownie that continues to linger and to grow and, and get yummier. So, and I guess we could have done Cap Franc, but we already moved all the bottles off the table. So there we go. Yep. So we're having Pinot and it's just as delicious. So I'm curious how you pronounce my last name. Oh, yes. Oh, by the way, this is Vincent. I was going to say Frisch. <clears throat> That's incorrect. I figured it was. <laughs> Damn it. Okay. Would you believe Fritchy? Yeah, see, I would have never gone there. Sort of like itchy. But Fritchy. Bitchy <laughs> or scratchy. No, actually no. Fritchy. Twitchy. Fritchy. Twitchy. <laughs> yes. There were many playground yeah. insults for me, brothers, sisters. I thought I was so. doing so good with Frisch, Frisch because it sounded European. It's German. It's Fritsche yes. or Fritsche. Yeah. Or Fritsche, I think, in the... And, and uh, see, my family is, I mean, it's Fritchy. Swiss German. So oh. I, I've usually been pretty Die good Schweiz, about, yeah. you know, their last name is Weiss. But mm. when you look at it, it looks like Weiss because it's W-Y-S-S. Actually, it looks like Weiss. Weiss. Yes, it does. Weiss. It looks like Weiss. Weisswein. Yes. Weiss. The Weiss. Yes, the Interlaken Grindelwald area. So the Ooh, Italian, German, mm. Switzerland kind of little area right there. Yeah. So, mm. yes, it is gorgeous over there so that is next year's trip is to go <laughs> oh, back oh fantastic yes. the homeland my, my husband does not know that fully that we are Secret. going there but he we are going now. husband doesn't well, listen to the pod not, no he doesn't actually my husband is a, a loser in the fact that he doesn't uh, listen to his wife's nah, stuff I mean, come on <laughs> you know how many times i've sent him the link he's asked always. me for the link so many times and i've sent it to him i've, t- I've texted it to him he's like okay i'll listen today because he spends a lot of time in his pickup Never has. But honestly, I'm almost glad that he hasn't because then I don't have to hear any criticism if he does have like something to add. So, you know, there we go. You he really ought me- to do this on the pod, honey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he had a great idea for a new podcast. That's some sound mixing yes, ideas. Yes. <laughs> and it actually is a really good idea, but it all comes down to money and having to um, produce another show. So stay tuned for The Average Joe Drinks Wine. <laughs> so there we go. Okay, so now that we right. have um, learned how to pronounce Vincent Fritchie, this is There's Vince- a reason it's Vincent Wine Company. 
<laughs> so there, there it is. He's introduced himself and everything. I don't even have to do that part anymore. We've eaten brownies. We've drank wine. We have pronounced names. And now we're going to talk about Vincent and how he got into wine. <laughs> because you grew up down in the L.A. area. Yeah, in Southern you, California. Yes. Yeah, and you were, I think you told me you were a surfer, skater dude for a long time. Yeah, self-styled, I suppose. <laughs> if, if we don't call ourselves these things, no one else yes, will. But, yes. Um, I tried. I tried mightily. Well, I'm sure you tried a yeah. lot and were a I lot better lot. than me. I watched a lot of Tony Hawk videos. Oh, Tony Hawk's the man. <laughs> I grew up with an uncle who was a world-class surfer, and I thought it was normal for people to have half pipes from their garage <laughs> to their house, you know, because that's what he had in his backyard yeah. was this huge half pipe that went above the garage and went above the house. Was, he was just, <laughs> Not a, normal. just a beast, you know, and, and all of his friends that would come over and surf and do that stuff yeah. with him. So I can totally totally relate to, yeah. you know, whatever. I, on the other hand, was not allowed to surf. My mom thought I would get eaten by a shark, so yeah, I was not allowed probably, out the, the Pacific Ocean, and good, I am too uncoordinated to stand on a skateboard. So oh, there we yeah. go. No, so, I, I loved I loved growing up surfing and skating. And, it's such a great... Um, oh, yeah. No, it's it was free is the thing. Free is even great. Even if you were even people who live by ski resorts, I guess they get a ski pass, and maybe it was the cost of it was relatively cheap, ultimately, but surfing was free. No lift ticket, no lines. You just hop in yep. and, and catch your waves and maybe you skateboard to the beach. So, But I always, honestly, always loved trees. So I was always moving north, loved the Bay Area. So growing up in LA, we love Frisco. I learned, don't call it that. Um, San Fran? Yeah, don't call <laughs> yes. that either. Yeah, San Francisco. Oh, it's the you whole- You don't call it San Fran. You don't call it Frisco. You don't call it a lot of things. The Bay <laughs> and they, Area? And the Bay Area is acceptable. Okay. Apparently. No, they but they hated LA. And they're like, oh, we hate LA, but you're all right. So I love the Bay Area, but I kept moving north. I remember being a little kid and I had uh, uh, one of my sisters came home from spring break with all these uh, women from the dorm. And I'm, you know, in junior high, like, I love you all. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> a bunch of them are from Oregon. They're like, you would love Oregon. And uh, it stuck in my mind. It's just the mountains, the coast, you know, surfing to the... The snow, the just everything, the rivers, just uh, you know. So it's a wonderful place, and I, over the years, found my way here. I kept moving north in my life. So from Southern California, but people often say, "How did you end up in Oregon?" Or wouldn't isn't this crazy? And where I grew up by the coast, it wasn't super hot. It was often cloudy. It didn't rain like it does here, but but it wasn't. Um, I didn't grow up in the valley. Even I didn't. I didn't grow up in hundred degree heat. It was real, much more mild and. Uh, in some ways, up here, there are mornings that remind me of home in a great way. I love the mornings up here. It's oh, like yeah. my favorite time of day. Exactly, yeah. So you went to school in San Francisco. Yeah, in the Bay Area. And um, you told me the story, and I have okay. kind of forgotten on how you got from San Francisco yeah. to Oregon with, with the whole ideology of drinking wine. And, yeah, but and it, 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 was, it was nonlinear, but it worked in, in retrospect, it worked out. But I, I was in San Francisco in the 1990s. Met a girl, got married. We were planning to start a family and we're about to, but at the same time, trying to find a house. I'd fallen in. I had a love of wine. I'd fallen in with some people who make wine and still do down the Bay Area and Santa Rosa area, Sonoma County. And I found you could make wine without being a land baron, without being a... I wasn't from farming. I, I didn't have a billion dollars, didn't know all this stuff, but I realized there are people, it's true. Oh, they're making Hirsch Vineyard Pinot Noir. They don't own the Hirsch Vineyard. The Hirsches do, you know? Oh, they must work with the grower. And like, oh, they have that acre and a half or that three acre block. 
and they work closely on the farming and then they rent a space. They don't even own the, where they make the wine. They rent a space and they make wine. And so I, I fell in with people who love wine, but we're making wine. We're interested in me helping them. I, I joke, we'll take anyone with a pulse uh, at Harvest. <laughs> but the truth is not everyone wants to hang around. Not everyone wants to, to keep making wine. And much to my surprise, if I like bicycles, I don't build bikes. If I like surfing, I don't build surfboards. So I thought about that, but no, I don't, no, not into that. I love wine. I fell into wine, a whole other story, but but it's just this lovely thing with culture and history and the whole making and the growing. And and sure enough, I fell into the making of it. But it, Oregon was really a place to come raise a family. And so my wife and I were, and then had and have two children, and we wanted a place where we wanted to be. You know, we didn't want to, you know, well, we could afford Denver, maybe. But as soon as the job opened in Texas, we'd go there or something back in Southern California or just you start moving around. We wanted to be somewhere. I secretly wanted to make wine and not secretly, but I thought, oh, maybe in Oregon seemed to be like this leading edge, a special place where we've just enough season, even in our warming climate. The day length isn't changing. And come October, the days start getting real. The mornings get cold, the nights get long, and it, and the season ends. And you can't grow certain fruit here because it just we don't have enough season. But I just I was attracted by this place, both to raise a family and maybe to make wine. And that seemed like a dream, like going to Hollywood to try and be a music you know hero or something. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I realized, and and Leah's a great example. While Leah's a rock star. Also, is, he is a rock star, but is also is just is working her business and makes her wine and lives a life. And it's not like you have to be, you know, we're not all Academy Award winner, you know, Grammy Award recording artists. We're just working musician winemaker type people who, and I realize there are a ton of people like us mm-hmm. who aren't from the stars, who aren't made, well, we're made of the stars, but uh, we don't have all the money in the world, but you can do this if you're really into it. And we're really into it. So that's an interesting thing that you pointed out, you know, when you were in San Francisco that, you know, because you liked things like that. And that was kind of the analogy you used. You know, it's almost like going to Hollywood to be an actor or an actress. But how many people actually win the Academy Award and actually get to do what they want, even to make it a commercial, like a even a B-level commercial? How many people actually get cast to do that? Whereas as a winemaker, you can make it in your bathtub. You can yeah. make it in your garage or your yeah. closet or whatever. And you don't have to be the rock star. And um, on a side note, I'm sure you can see Leah Jorgensen at Red Hills Clinic with a, or Red Hills Kitchen with the rest of the parade of rock stars right, that come exactly. through there during harvest. But But you have so many opportunities up here. And whether you do own an estate or you don't own an estate or you, you know, are renting a I don't know. You could be like Tom with Praytel that has like a 10 by 10 space that he's making kind of in like a little storage unit and he's growing and whatever. And I love that the more I learn about it, because I had no idea people made wine in downtown warehouse Portland. Right. No, I remember learning that. Like, I didn't know you could make wine here. But over the years, and I I mean, people always ask, oh, and I'm sure Leah gets this as well. Leah, you know, Vincent Wine Company, where's your vineyard? Like, well, I work with growers, but even Robert Mondavi bought from people, sold, I'm sure, sold grapes, mm-hmm. that there's certain economic and real reasons why people buy and sell fruit. Mm-hmm. But there's just, there's so many people who have an interest in both making wine and growing grapes, and not everyone wants to do it all. And there are a ton of vineyards that aren't attached to wineries, a ton of wineries like us who don't own vineyards. And 
I, it was really eye-opening to learn that even when people own wineries with vineyards right there and it's it's the, oh, I buy fruit from you. And oh, I sell fruit to them. <laughs> oh, and we get some fruit because we want to make something that we don't grow. And so it's it's really, I don't mean it in the, I think the romance of the wine industry is that we all grow our fruit, make our wine. What I do is I work with different growers and Leah the same way. You have specific parts of their vineyard that you work with. You get the fruit and make it. But it's true that we don't all own everything that we do. But that's okay, I think. It is okay. The and it is show. so so <laughs> expensive to right. make wine just in general. I mean, right. the bottles, yeah. the corks, the oh, labels, yeah. the art for the labels. I mean, it's and just even just the grapes themselves. I mean, you're basically gambling on the fact that you're going to buy this product. It's going to be good in your whatever you're going to do to it, hopefully is good. And then by the time you get it in the bottle, you hope that it's worth drinking. And but it's it's all a gamble all the way through until oh. somebody actually opens a bottle, tries it and go, "Oh, well damn, let's share this with my friends and and you know, you were on your merry sales tour to where you're, you're right. selling it to restaurants or friends or family or you know, club members or whoever it is that you're doing." And they're just there's a lot of romance in the wine industry, but there's so much gamble and hard work and yeah. money yeah. that is not on realized. So much on the line, and you put all of it up front before you have anything to sell. Yeah. No, the next time we have a nice, robust harvest of good, high-quality fruit, a good long summer with a big crop, and sometimes we're like, wow, it's extra fruit. It's like, no, that's payback for the frost in 22, yeah. the smoke in 2020, and yeah. that's farming, that's agriculture. And while I'm not a farmer, though I work very closely with my growers, I always want to be clear that people say, well, you're a farmer. I'm like, no, I'm not. And I don't want to claim that, but I work very closely with with where I with with and, and I'm not alone in, in my production. But I make the wine, I sell the wine, but it's a variable thing. Somehow, I don't know how else to explain it, but it works. Even with calamity, it works. I literally have a bottle. This is my big thing lately. I have a bottle of 1943 Dom Perignon in my cellar. It's an artifact, meaning it is. It was my great uncle's bottle. He was a gourmand of sorts and, and loved, and it was a great a great guy. I remember him when I was young, but he died years and years and years ago. His widow gave me this bottle, and to me, it's the answer to what you do when there's smoke, when there's fire, when there's rain, when there's frost, when there's war, anything. Like, who the heck was farming and making champagne? Occupied France. Not that any other part of France was having a yeah. rosy time in 43. But champagne, you weren't hiding out in, in northeast France. You were you were in occupied territory. They're farming the grapes still, made the wine. They're like, we're making champagne. I'm sure it wasn't a joyful time, but you still do it because that's what you do. It's so interesting. Mean, yeah, I don't mean to like make light of the depth of that because that's a different kind of thing than our fires or our But frost. it's something you don't really even think about with the tragedy of what all of that was and yeah. the ugly. Nobody knew what was coming in 44 no. or 45 or beyond. Yeah. You still make the wine. Bottom yep. line, you always make the wine. And so that's what, in some ways, you lean into the risk, but you realize that we can because it does work. We do have wheat every year. You could have a wheat disaster. I know in history, there have been disasters where it didn't work out. But by and large, we're, you know, we can, as much as, you know, anything in this world, we can figure out that we can grow grapes and generally make wine each year. It won't always be the best. It won't always be the most. But it but it does work out. It's crazy. Yeah. And I, I've leaned, I've become really into it. My whole wine production is about, I'm not dogmatic, but I do nothing to the fruit but add a little sulfur simply because 
I think that's all it, it needs. The grapes have all this magical stuff. They have all the sugar that becomes alcohol. They have all the acidity. They have all the flavors. They're like these special things, like super talented people. <laughs> They're like, get out of their way. Just let them do their thing. And so that's my thing. They're so fun. They're so special. They're not only worth the risk that we're talking about. In some ways, those risks are mitigated by some years are truly abundant and great. And most of the time, we just make it through somehow or another. Um, and it still becomes a beautiful product. And, oh, yeah. And every year is different. So, I mean, and, and that, I think, is the beauty of wine is the fact you have this amazing time capsule that is sealed typically with a cork. And it changes and it tastes different and it feels different and it has a different memory attached to it. And yeah. it's just such a lovely thing that I have been missing out my entire life until, I don't know, five or six years yeah, ago. Yeah, well, it's and, a good And now it's so to, fun. But all the memories you do have of childhood, of the dairy farming, of friends, of times, of wanting to get out of the town you grew up in, wanting to come back to the town you grew up in. Yes. Like all those push-pull things of life. Whether wine is a lens or grape growing and winemaking or whatever it is, there are all these ways to help understand those things and see them in wine. I think it's beautiful. And maybe we we're talking about this of like 1974 is a good vintage, you know? Uh, it's fun. I'm like, sure it was because it was a good year. It was it's created actually, a lot a, of great things. It's a things classic year. year in California. Yeah. Horrible year in Bordeaux, apparently. But you can taste, you can almost drink the, the wine of the year you were born. Like there's such a literal history in wine that you can actually drink. It's like old food. Like, I don't like old food, except that old food. <laughs> I'll pay extra. <laughs> so it's, uh, wine is a special, magical thing, but it's not the only way. I've obviously, you weren't saying that it is. But, no, no, not at all. But, but yeah, it, it's, but it's it a is special. a very tangible, accessible thing to experience. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And it is different every year. So you yeah. get these different kind of time lapses as you kind of go through. I'm, no, I'm into that. Whatever. I mean, I've had some rough years in life. I mean, rough in that like bad things happened or, but generally life is pretty magical. I'm still here. Right. And I really feel that way with wine. And I think you were nodding Leah earlier that, yeah, like every year we're able to make wine. It, it isn't always the best. Sometimes I've made some wines. And I'm like, I don't love this wine. Then I do open it later. And I'm like, what the heck? This is great. And I, I like to think, and I try and parent this way. It's more of of a guide to parenting, not that I do this. It's what I hope to do. My mom would say this, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, Every parent says <laughs> Right, that. right. Yes. But that idea of I'm really trying to be careful with my grapes, but not overriding, overburdening. So we're not, not helicoptering. Yeah, we don't let the grapes and the kids don't play in the street. Yeah. <laughs> or the, at least not a street that isn't somehow like, I talked to somebody, they're like, well, I lived in Brooklyn and I grew up and I'm like, okay, fine. In the summer of Brooklyn, you're opening fire hydrants, you're playing all kinds of stick games in the street. Great. But by and large, keep the kids off the road, especially in the country. <laughs> but otherwise, like we, there are two, you don't have to like be applying to law school. And I like to make wine. I feel like the grapes, or we make wine from grapes because they are these special transmitters of place, of time. But they also have all the goods. They're like seeds that will grow into the plant. You're like, how do how is it all in there? And you're like, it all is. And so I'm really interested in making wine in a very simple way. We don't do anything but just let the wines be and we try and figure out what they are at what, that point. What the, yeah, yeah, we're trying to guide them carefully. Yeah. Clean vessels, careful attention to detail. Lots of cleaning. Lots of cleaning, but not yes. a lot of moving, not a lot of mixing. So the red wines don't get punched down every day or, you know, most days, no touching. Just let them hang. And uh, we're trying to let them be what they are rather than make them. That's, make, that's makes the Makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think ultimately like, it's- like child child rearing. 
to a, yes, to an extent without the heli- without the helicopter. It's easier with one because literally there is they don't no talk life back on the line. As bad. They don't yes, know. Yes, but they let you know when they're done. Oh, oh, for I sure. I think you were saying this. Yes. Cabernet Franc needs some extra time. Yes, and you can have say, especially when you have more than one kid. I only have two, but say you you can do the same thing, same terroir, same nurturing, even. And this kid's ready to go. That kid is still like shirt on their feet and their pants on their head. And you're like, how are you ever going to get a job? Like different (laughs) kids are different things. Different wines are this way. I started a whole line of wines called my Tardive wines, meaning they're late, like being tardy to school. That's sort of a play on. There's certain French producers who have cuvee Tardives, like later bottlings, meaning it's later. But these wines weren't ready. And so I'm like, well, I'll bottle you later and I'll call you the Cuvée Tardive because you've like been Mark I've, nev- I've never heard that. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. I've made this up and it's it's, it's okay. like saying like reserve it. or something. I, I like made up things. Right. Yes. But but it, the idea is wines have the, yes. uh, wine has an idea of its own. I'm really interested personally in that. Like there's tons of great wine out there. I love like a musician who might love wine. Like I remember having a friend who was a classical musician and I couldn't believe she loved heavy metal. And then I thought, she was looking at me like, what the hell? I'm a human being. Like, what are you talking about? I like, I like all kinds of stuff. But I do play, you know, Bach or I play Mozart or whatever. So I make wine the way I make it, but I love all kinds of wine. And I don't all need to be made that way. It doesn't all need to be. But I definitely get up in the morning to see, like, fruit comes in and we're just interested. We do use a little sulfur, but otherwise nothing added, nothing taken away. I'm just interested in what happens. So, well, let's talk about what you're putting in the bottle then. Yeah. Your the tasting room is up on Eola Hills. So yeah, you no are the tasting room. I just yes. taste by appointment, but the yes. winery facility yes. and, is yes. up on Eola Hills. Sorry, that's right. Eola Hills mis- misconstrued yes. that. No, no, I, I don't um, but and I know you do Pinot because we've been drinking Pinot. In Pinot fact, Noir. I need to, I need to refill my glass with the Please. one that um, just Try got opened. Yes, yeah, I have not 20... done that one. Can you reach so that? I make a pri- about half my production is Pinot Noir, uh, and I started the winery in two thousand nine. Uh, and went full-time in 2015, and Leah is pouring the 2015 Armstrong Vineyard Ribbon Ridge Appalachian Pinot Noir. So this is sort of the top selection of Armstrong Vineyard uh, that I that I made from that year. So I, I have a few different parts, parts of this one vineyard, marine soils, Ribbon Ridge Appalachian. I make, you know, we'll pick all the parts of the vineyard separately, make all the wines separately, and then decide what we thought was best in the in the year, what was most... I think of it as like cuts of either meat or bread or whatever works for someone, maybe even a mushroom. So you have a big portobello mushroom or something. If you have the center cut of something, the reason it's special is it has the full dimension. <laughs> if it's a if it's cut of bread and you're making sandwich, you like, you know, maybe you cut the ends off and you just want the middle of it for your baguette sandwich or the center cut of steak. It has the filet and the strip, the whole thing. And the end cut's all good. But usually I find the press wine's kind of the end cut. I'm looking for the barrels that sort of tell me, like of all the 20 barrels we made from this vineyard, these four are just like tell the full story, have the full dimensionality, they have the texture, aroma, flavor, the whole thing. And I think best exhibit. They're the photograph we're most proud of, right? And so we are making a judgment that this is what we think is best. But I view it as sometimes people are like, wow, it must be so hard. And it kind of is. But in some ways, if you were cutting slices of bread and you were like, oh, I just want the middle part of the bread where it's fully dimensional and not the end parts that are hard to make a sandwich with, then you just, you know, whatever, if it's like a round loaf or something. The idea being that I'm just interested in 
wines of place, in this case, the Armstrong Vineyard, wines of a year, in this case, 2015. So seven years on, six, almost six years in bottle. And that was the year I went full-time in my winery. So I had started it, it on the side. It was a special year. It was a big one. Because yeah. I, 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 every harvest until that time was like, don't get fired. I worked in publishing and then higher ed. I was, I was basically, like I said, a wine geek who got into winemaking, but I worked outside of wine. And, uh, and I started making wine and it was like, let's keep the day job. Finally, 2015, the beauty was I could literally stay at the winery all day. I didn't have to go to the winery, try and zip off to try and get my work done, come back. And so 2015 was like a big exhale. And ultimately that I realized, okay, <laughs> I built a boat. Now we jumped in the boat. Now we better do stuff with it. Time to so, sail and float. Exactly. Yes. But here we are seven years later and things oh, are going well. And I really couldn't lovely. go back. So. Yes. So what else are you making? Because I think you said you usually yeah. like to do things in the Pinot family. So Pinot, exactly. A Pinot. So Pinot Noir is about half the production. Chardonnay. Then Pinot Gris. And I make Pinot Gris as a red one. So I essentially just ferment it. I also make some Pinot Gris into rosé. So I press some of it direct to make a, a clear rosé that I just color with a little red wine. Uh, I sort of do it method champenois or champenoise. Um, I make a red wine of Pinot Gris because Gris has color in it, has tan, and it's sort of like the crusty French bread of Pinot Noir's, the brioche. <laughs> I like it. I like food analogies. Yes, no, I'm, but like I different dig it. textures. You know, like brioche, it's an enriched bread. It's like it's a little fancier. The Pinot Gris, it's a little. It's a little more rustic in the best sense. So I make a red wine of Pinot Gris. I make Gamay, which is a child of Pinot Noir. And I like the analogy there of like Pinot Noir has a job. And Gamay is like your friend from out of town. Yeah. He's like, hey, <laughs> let's go out late. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> looking at Leah. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, no, it's so, and so like different grace have different personalities. So Gamay makes very serious wine. And ultimately the story of that friend or that the, the the child, if the parent is serious and the child is not serious, usually that story is that the child ends up being the parent. They end up being serious. We always forget. We think, ah, oh, that child will be nothing, and then they're nothing. No, they always grow up. <laughs> they pretty much always grow up. So the point being, the Gamay makes serious wine, but I like its personality. I also make Pinot Blanc, and I only make a small amount. I have a two-thirds of an acre at Zenith Vineyard. It's the only Blanc that they grow there. I lease that block and have for years. And so we make six to eight barrels, whatever we can get off it. Nice. Um, and uh, You don't see a lot of Pinot Blanc. No. And I make it, I make the wines very simply. I make the Pinot Blanc and the Chardonnay and the Rosé, all natural fermentation and French oak. And then the red wines are all open top fermentation, meaning just simple natural fermentation, meaning no yeast added, nothing added to it, but a little sulfur. And then nothing's filtered, just uh, I let time. Like the Stardive wines I mentioned, they just took longer, like a longer aging cheese or a meat. You're like, this one's not ready? We're going to wait. And I've had enough latitude. I mean, I've worked for other people and a lot of things. The one thing I realized one day is that I probably need to work for myself because I usually get in trouble because I'm like, why don't we do it differently? <laughs> and so it, I, I basically live up to it occasionally that... In my, in my own winemaking, I find myself realizing I have to do something I didn't think we were going to do. And I have to be okay with it because I'm like my own employee. I'm like, oh, that guy, you had an idea. Like, dang it. <laughs> That's the, that is such a great way to end right there. <laughs> Cheers. Uh, okay, so where do we find the wines? Oh, um, my wines are they're distributed locally in Oregon through Delicious Wines. But a number of wine shops and restaurants 
Olympia Provisions has been huge in Portland. Provador is a huge supporter. E&R Wines. Uh, gosh, there's so many. I can't even think of What them. about website and social media? I am vincentwinecompany.com. And then in social media, I'm at Vincent Wines on Twitter. And I'm Vincent JF on Instagram because uh, that was like my family. My, my, my dad Instagram. I, I started Instagram as like my original thing was I'm my daughter's, you know, dad. So he better back the hell off because <laughs> she was like 10 and sort of getting into social media when Instagram started or 11 or whatever. And, and so I was Vincent JF, my name, Vincent Jones Fritchie. Fritchie. Don't yeah. forget Fritchie. that. Fritchie. Not Fritch, not Frisch. I'm going to take a quick small detour because my nephew, Kyle, has been asking me for months to give him a massive shout out on the show. He's a state trooper, so he works the highways oh, really? um, and listens to the show, unlike his uncle, <laughs> and wants to be listened and have his name said around the world. So, right Kyle, just know that we are super proud of you. Please stay safe. And don't ever ask me to do this again. So yeah. <laughs> this is your one, no, right one on, gift Kyle. from me. We love you to pieces. So yeah. anyhow, that being said, Kyle, I expect a text message later, just so you know. <laughs> um, but we're going to finish with our question. And this could get really interesting with you, too, just because you have such personalities. But we end every show with this. And you each have your own answer. So you get one celebrity, dead or alive, to go hang out with. I always say a deserted island, but you could you could be taking a road trip through France or wherever you want to go, boat ride down the Willamette. You get a bottle of wine, yours or somebody else's, or really any drink that you want to take, and a snack. Who are you taking? What are you drinking? What snack are you going to enjoy? You go ahead, Leah. Frida Kahlo. Frida Kahlo. Who's that? A painter from okay. Mexico. Okay. The one with the flower crown. Oh, okay. I'm with you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Frida Kahlo, we're going to go... Do I get to just dream up the whole thing? Yes. It's, okay. This is totally like Disneyland type fantasy. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Me and my pal, my gal pal, Frida, uh, we're going to get into a 19... Uh, let's see... I always go with the 1963 Stingray, but I think I want to do like the Shan the what's his name the Shelby, the oh, Shelby Mustang? yes yeah the Shelby like Mustang yeah. Or Cobra or yeah whatever. yeah 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 the, was it what 1950 60 is it a convertible was it I think it's 65 66 you know it was Leah wow. Coca era but yeah yeah so. Know. Why not? We're gonna have some uh, mezcal because she's Mexican. And um, and then I will bring my amazing linguine and clam sauce that I learned how to make from my grandma. And we're going to go hit some cliffs somewhere over water and sit and just chit chat about art, life. And she's got all kinds of crazy wisdom. So it's been documented in books, but it's not the same when you get to sit down with someone. And so. you're not going to film and Louise it off that cliff. You're I don't gonna, think so. You're going you're gonna to sit there and enjoy, that's right? To, that's, okay. up, spoiler that's up to Frida. Alert. Okay. That's up okay. to Frida. 1992 spoiler alert. <laughs> Maybe yeah, way past that spoiler no, alert. No. If you haven't watched Thelma and Louise, shame on you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, Vincent, up to you. Um, okay, this is uh, all too revealing. No, it would, it would be, I, I grew up playing guitar. Uh, Jerry Garcia. Oh, Jerry. there we go. Yeah, yeah. And and to go with the theme then, because Bob Dylan sang this, it would be Burgundy. We'd have to drink Burgundy. Probably some fancy Latosh or something. 
and going with this was an old Bob Dylan lyric that you start out in Burgundy and you soon hit the harder stuff. Um, we probably have forage mushrooms, I suppose. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> well, we're in Oregon, you know, we morale, are, we, chanterelles. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the ones that grow out of the cow patty piles, yeah, you know, all you of know, the ones oh, that turn magic. Yeah, those, yes. those true you guys could have too, a hell of a trip perhaps. by the time you're done. Yes. You asked. <laughs> <laughs> this so, is fantastic. So I grew up in Tillamook. Come so on. So basically, Vincent's going to get, you know, spaced out with, with Garcia, <laughs> and I'm basically <laughs> driving off of a cliff with Frida Kahlo. Yeah. So with Mezcal. Yeah. See you yes. there. <laughs> See you there. <laughs> Well, everybody, thank you, Leah and Vincent, for joining us and making this so entertaining. And don't forget, life is short, so drink the wine. <laughs>